I'm just a simple man trying to make my way through this podcast. Hey guys, before we get stuck into episode two, I just wanted to start off with a big thank you, thank you, thank you so much to everyone who's been so supportive of me and of the show since it's gone up. I've just received so many incredibly encouraging words and messages and support from family and friends and people who I haven't met yet, but have started listening to the show. I'm so thankful for all of you, and I'm really excited to get this journey further underway. I just wanted to start off with a big thank you. Your support has meant so much to me, and I'm excited to see where this show can go. So without further ado, here is episode two of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode two of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels, both in Legends and canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I am your host along this journey. In this episode, we will continue through Star Wars Thrawn, covering chapters three and four, and I am joined today once more by my good friend with a better accent than I could ever dream of, Douglas Dubois. Doug, how are you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing good, thanks. Thank you so much for, for having me on again. Yeah, it's been a, been a short minute. Uh, thank you for, for coming back on the episode. For the, the listeners who, who don't know, uh, we had originally planned to do uh, episode uh, chapters one through three in the first episode, so he had already been prepped for like half of the episode, so I figured, why not have him on again? He also, you know, sweet accent, so the listeners will will love it so um yeah uh thanks for coming on again man uh, i'm excited to get stuck into uh yeah chapters three and four of thrawn we left on a uh, on a very interesting note with uh you know thrawn name dropping anakin skywalker a little bit of a, a hefty cliffhanger so yeah i'll uh, start off the chapter by giving a brief summary so i'll get stuck right into the chapter summary for chapter three Thrawn and Palpatine discuss Thrawn's service to the Empire in the wake of dangers in the unknown regions. Thrawn requests that the Emperor officially assigns Eli Vanto to duty at his side moving forward. The Emperor sends Thrawn and Vanto to the Royal Imperial Academy to complete the last three months of Vanto's training. Upon arriving to the Royal Imperial Academy, Thrawn and Vanto are met with disdainful eyes from Commandant Deanlark. A non-human and a cadet from the fringes of the Empire are not welcome there. The Emperor requested Thrawn be given the rank of Lieutenant upon graduating, but Deanlark gives Thrawn the rank on his first day, setting Thrawn up for disrespect and contempt from the prejudiced cadets from the Core Worlds. With an already rocky start to their partnership, given Vanto's career path has been entirely derailed, Eli and Thrawn prepare for a challenging next few So this, uh, yeah, this chapter starts off with, uh, you know, continuing Thrawn and Palpatine's conversation in the Imperial Palace. Of, and <laughs> like I said, how it ended on a cliffhanger with, uh, with Thrawn name-dropping Anakin, I thought it was hilarious, Doug, how all that Palpatine says to the mention of Anakin Skywalker is interesting. interesting. And I just thought that was a hilarious contrast to how shocked readers must have been. And then Palpatine just takes it right in stride, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and right from sort of the the internal monologue at the start of the, the chapter, we get that name dropped again as well, just to remind you in case you fell asleep after you read the, the second <laughs> chapter or took a break from the book or whatever. 
we know we know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I I would be surprised if anyone just put the book down and was like, "All right, see you tomorrow." <laughs> I'm not going to keep reading right after he name drops such a big character. Uh, but Palpatine, yeah, he just takes it so coolly. I thought that was um, I thought that was really really interesting, uh, and actually. I, thought it was really funny and uh upon Thrawn giving Palpatine his name you know his his full name of Mithrawn Odo, I think he he uh mentions that he had heard of Thrawn from Anakin before which I think mm. just adds a lot of intrigue as to what kind of adventures they you know Anakin and Thrawn had um before all of this even happened had the Emperor been thinking about him all this time because obviously the uh the story we eventually find out that he told uh, is an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, he, he enough for Anakin to have uh, you know praised the the abilities of Thrawn, and you know, so Thrawn already has a big reputation in the eyes of the Emperor, and now he's face to face with someone who potentially worked very closely at a time with his apprentice. And uh, yeah, they, so they they continue that conversation. I think that it was a really funny moment when because Thrawn and Palpatine they walk into this little garden area to continue their conversation about what exactly Thrawn can offer to the emperor from his knowledge to the of the unknown regions and what exactly that relationship and his service to the empire would look like i thought it was really funny that palpatine just has a garden hanging out in the imperial palace like i oh, yeah. i would uh, palpatine would have been the, the last person <laughs> yeah right tiptoeing through the tulips you know palpatine with a green thumb uh, i, <laughs> I would never have <laughs> never have that you know just in his leisure time just uh you know planting some planted some flowers i i thought that was a really uh really funny funny um moment but it's surrounded by a much deeper and more important conversation starting with thrawn asking the emperor to uh transfer vanto to his side in my notes i wrote eli must be thrilled which we've already established <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the total opposite of that what do you make of their conversation there was there was a lot that went on discussing how loyal to the empire that thrawn would be even if the empire would consider the chist to be enemies of the empire one day if they did expand into the unknown regions yeah well i thought it was sort of interesting first off that the Emperor kind of uses the guise of, of answering his question about taking on Eli or, or retaining Eli, um, which which we already sort of find out from that, that first little internal monologue from Thrawn is obviously quite important to him. Um, and then as soon as they get outside, the first thing they're talking about is, is Skywalker. So it's, it's sort of interesting how that uh, the Emperor doesn't want to discuss Skywalker in those terms in front of everyone else, because obviously he was a well-known Jedi and... We all know how about the Empire feels about them, you know? Yeah, exactly. And especially because obviously no one knows that, that Vader is Anakin Skywalker. And so even in the face of his guards who are around him 24-7 and some high-ranking officer uh, in Captain Park, uh, he, yeah, like you said, he uses the conversation of transferring Eli permanently to Thrawn's side as, as a as a, uh, a mask of sorts to have a reason to discuss Skywalker in the confidence of his tulip garden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, Thrawn kind of, he just continues to sell, try to sell his point about, you know, hey, I've got knowledge about the unknown regions that I know you're interested in that you don't have as of yet, but you can if I can take Anakin's place, um, given that, you know, in Thrawn's eyes, he doesn't, know that Anakin obviously lives in the person of, of Vader now mm. and he yeah he's thinking okay Anakin's gone this is a this is an interesting um or an important path for me to potentially become the emperor's right-hand man 
um, and he tries to to sell that point. Do you have any any thoughts on on the uh, details of their conversation in that respect? Yeah, well, I thought Palpatine offers for Thrawn to to join his service as such, I guess, and he doesn't do so immediately. He, you know, he has a bit of back and forth with Thrawn and wants to gauge a bit of Thrawn and you see from Thrawn a little sort of glimpse into you know his perception around artistic expression and he's he's noticing the um, noticing the garden and asking him if he you know if he designed it himself that sort of thing it was just a a good little interaction between two two cool characters yeah definitely definitely and Thrawn assures him that if he were to uh, serve the Empire he would be totally loyal to the uh, to the Empire and to the Emperor specifically uh, which Palpatine takes his word on and then uh, Palpatine questions him about you know why he wants to keep Vanto around you know his his Thrawn's basic seems pretty good so clearly there's more to Vanto and Thrawn's eyes than just being a translator you know Thrawn knows that Vanto has some kind of knowledge about the Chiss and he's still interested as to how he had found out about them and and the way that this little scene ends Thrawn kind of hints at him having big plans for Eli you know when the two of them return to the larger group uh, Palpatine informs Captain Park that Vanto is to stay with Thrawn on Coruscant to finish his training Vanto in Thrawn's eyes you know because Thrawn can can read his body language his facial expressions he's pissed yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Thrawn kind of kind of mulls over and I quote, he does not understand, nor will he, not for a long while. And yeah, uh, if we hadn't known that Vanto was going to be pretty central to to Thrawn's plans, that's that's one way to really uh, to hit the nail on the head with the hammer to end that scene. Yeah. So well, a lot of intrigue around what he sees in Vanto's future with him uh, moving forward. I guess, uh, you know, uh, one of our main POV characters is, is set, we can tell from, from this point in. Yeah, and, and that kind of continues um, into the second section of the chapter where we are in now, now in Eli's point of view, and they are at the Royal Academy. And <laughs> right off the bat, we're just hit with, you know, kind of slapped in the face with just the, just the, uh, the such, such dislikable character in Commandant Dean Lark, <laughs> who is this prejudiced guy from the core worlds. He is just looking down totally on uh, Eli and Thrawn being from, you know, the edges of the empire. He, and I've underlined it, he, he's asking if this is the Admiral's idea of a joke sending them there. He's asking Thrawn, <laughs> what's his excuse for living? I was, you know, I, my fists were clenched with this guy. It's like, you know, he, he does not know what Thrawn is capable of. And I, I was blown away with how calm, cool, and collected Thrawn was in the face of this, you know, just straight-up assholery. Yeah, and, and because Thrawn's such a... I guess confident character. I, I I kind of thought maybe he'd bite back at some of the things uh, the commandant was saying, but he he plays it pretty cool. Yeah, he knows when to when to speak, when to remain silent, and the same goes for Eli. I was mm. um, very kind of proud of Eli, you know, because he's had everything turned on its head as far as his career goes, and he is able to keep his cool. He realizes that, you know, this is just bait. The, the uh, Dean Lark is just trying to bait them into saying something that they'll regret, you know, to give him an excuse to their lives starting at the Imperial Academy, even more hellish than they will be. But yeah, they're not biting. And Dean Lark moves on, you know, he can, he can kind of tell that these guys know what they're doing and he concedes to Thrawn's calmness and collectedness. And he moves on to, to the point where Palpatine had wanted Thrawn to 
to be a lieutenant upon graduation, but he goes right ahead and gives him the brass on his first day. What did you, uh, what were your thoughts on that encounter? I was not expecting that, and neither apparently was, was Thrawn, as we'll uh, soon uh, understand. Yeah, well, uh, I guess Thrawn, even afterwards, is unsure as to why the, the Commandant's gone and, and done this, but Eli can sort of tell straight away that it's a, it's a setup. He's setting you up for failure. He knows better than Thrawn does the deep sort of sense of resentment towards not only uh, people from the Outer Rim, but aliens in particular. Uh, so it's effectually just, I guess, setting us up for uh, for all the, the hijinks and shenanigans that are going to come in the in the next few chapters covering uh, covering the time at the Academy. Yeah, I think that this part of the chapter where... You know, Thrawn and Eli are now on their way to um, to their personal quarters, and Thrawn's asking, you know, what's up with this guy giving me the rank right on the spot? And this is where Eli's knowledge of how kind of like the social hierarchy of the uh, Imperial Academies and his knowledge of the Empire where Thrawn, you know, obviously lacks. You know, he's going to grow into that, but as of now, he doesn't know a lot about those inner workings. This part is where Eli really shines, and he, you know, I've written down the three, you know, reasons that he hypothesizes why Dean Lark gave Thrawn the rank. The first one he uh, he brought up was that some at the Academy would see Thrawn then as Dean Lark's pet, and they would resent him for that. Um, you know, this guy strutting around with a uh, lieutenant rank, where Eli specifies that people at the Academy are not officially given a rank until they leave. So the fact that Thrawn would be walking around with a rank, you know, something's going up there, kind of like a, a teacher's pet figure almost. The second reason is that some would see him as a failed officer who's sent back to the Academy, and they would just take him as a total butt end of a joke and have even more of a reason to, to look on him with contempt. You know, if he couldn't make it out in the galaxy, and now he's sent all the way back to the Academy. But the third reason is the, is the uh, you know, a lot where the, the meatiest part, I think, where Vanto goes into the, the dislike of non-humans in the Empire, mm. where he mentions that a lot of alien species were in the Separatist movement, and that humans in the Empire were still bitter about that. And that the the view of the whole conflict between the Republic and the Separatists that's portrayed in the Empire is that humans bore the brunt of the blow in that war. Um, probably not true, but that's the narrative that's that's portrayed. And that really puts Thrawn in an interesting position, be, being an alien, being from the outer edges of the Empire, and then being being an officer where this would give the cadets kind of an excuse to see how far they could go. Uh, to try and intimidate or, you know, really uh, kind of kind of cross the cross the line or step on the line of how they interact with an officer. You know, he is now one of their superiors at the academy. But given all those factors, and he's uh, just shown up. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, and he's just shown up, which is it's just not a good formula for Thrawn to start off with. And I really love how Eli uh, broke that down. And it's funny, even when he's I was going to say when he's even sort of explaining that to, to Thrawn, one of the things I kind of noticed was how he's, as he's saying it, he's almost realising how ridiculous it sounds, even though he's kind of taken it for granted somewhat to, to be the case probably up until this point. And as he's saying it, he's kind of thinking, well, even though it's probably not the case. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I, liked, I really liked that exchange. Yeah, it was, it was very... Um 
very informative. And, and I think as he was speaking, Eli was just feeling even more doomed about, yeah. you know, he doesn't like Thrawn um, as of now because he's kind of upended his career and now he's stuck in this, you know, kind of being, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very, very different setting from the Myomar Imperial Academy where a lot of the officials there were also from kind of quote unquote backwater worlds. And now he's at the Imperial Academy where there's just so much bigotry, so much prejudice. And Eli's life is... Uh, yeah, very, very much hell at this point, and he is just sinking into that, into that realization as he is telling Thrawn, who doesn't know how how tricky, how testy these waters might be. Yeah, well, he's he's dragged out of his comfortable sort of destiny as he saw it, uh, and even just from that that chat with Dean Lark, I mean, Dean Lark's outright condescending and uh, and insulting to them throughout the entire conversation and then yeah. drops this bomb on on Thrawn uh, and then you can just see it going through Eli's head all the way back uh, all the way to the barracks just this isn't going well it's going from bad to worse if anything it's probably a the perfect time for I've got a bad feeling about this <laughs> that would be I think it's a crime we should shut the <laughs> shut the book you know shut the podcast down that they didn't take that opportunity to, <laughs> to drop that quote in there Zan, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> but it's an interesting end to the chapter because Thrawn, um, kind of like a little wink at Eli moment where he just puts the lieutenant rank in his pocket. He doesn't wear it. He just puts it in his pocket, which is a very smart move by him that he's going to try to go, you know, try to be as under the radar as possible until maybe he has an opportunity to to, to whip those out. So um, I thought that was a very, very smart move by Thrawn, given how... Uh, in over his head, he might be as far as the inner workings and the politics of the academy goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's all. That's all I've got for chapter three. Uh, do you have any any other thoughts before we move on the to other, uh, the next the, chapter? The other thing uh, is that Thrawn, I guess, sort of outright said to Eli towards the end of that conversation, effectively, you know, said, "What you you don't like this assignment?" Uh, you know, and and you can see in Eli's response, he's like, "Oh, well, I don't." Like I don't dislike my assignment, and I, and I don't dislike you. And is do you not? Uh, and Eli's kind of struggling with, oh man, I got to say the right yeah. thing here. I totally don't like this assignment. I don't know but whether don't he likes like, Thrawn or not at this stage, but he certainly doesn't want to be where he's at. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a very tough time for for Eli, who uh, poor yeah, Eli. His, his whole his whole future is yeah, poor Eli. That could be the the trending hashtag, poor Eli. <laughs> Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's move on, to ch- move on to chapter four. I'll jump right into the summary, and then we can get going from there. On the planet Lothal, Arinda Price is confronted by one of Lothal Governor Azadi's assistants, Eric Uvis, who seeks to purchase more shares of her family's company, Price Mining. The mining company had discovered a vein of dunium, an incredibly valuable metal on Lothal drawing the attention of corporations and politicians alike, trying to seize the opportunity to make a profit. Price denies Uvis's urgings to sell more shares to the governor, coldly ending the encounter. While thinking of her desire to move away to a more prominent world, Price is notified that her mother has been arrested by the governor's office on the charge of embezzlement. Price meets with Senator Domus Renking, hoping to negotiate her mother's release. Price's parents are offered new jobs off-world after Price reluctantly agrees to sell the company to the Empire. Price takes a small job in Coruscant, 
plotting her rise to political power. And and as as we can tell, we are introduced to uh, pretty much an entirely new character in Arinda Price. What are uh, what are your initial thoughts on on her as we jump into uh, the start of uh, another character's journey in this book, Doug? Well, she was a character I was uh, familiar with from Rebels at the time of, of reading this um, mm. the first time. Uh, so I guess I had a little bit of an idea of of what she was like, but I think um, in the uh, in the little monologue to start the chapter, uh, Thrawn gives us a pretty good idea of perhaps what we're in store for with this character, talking about um, I guess with choices that people make. Some are driven by chance, others by design, others uh, by a change in one's goals, and then it says some are driven by malice. And then goes on to sort of mm. say that that Arinda's story is is one of those cases, and and perhaps is a valuable lesson and a valuable warning in there. Yeah, I thought that was a really um, ominous way to end that little internal monologue, where you know that that her path can be seen as as a warning as much as a lesson. And so right off the bat, we are kind of yeah given this ominous expectations for uh, this Arinda Price, who is you know being heckled by uh, this representative from the from the governor's office about their mine. But I love that some are driven by malice. That's just yeah. such a <laughs> kind of high expectations for for what we can get from her moving forward. I personally, uh, you know, at, at this point, I'm still watching Rebels and I haven't been introduced to her character yet. So I was trying to, to Google her her timeline to see if she had popped up before, um, but also trying to avoid spoilers. So as far as the literature goes, I think this is her first time on the stage. But uh, and I feel like I'm kind of kind of at a, uh, a step back from everyone who's who's seen Rebels because I you know, coming into this book, I've known nothing about Arinda Price. And this uh, this part of the chapter definitely takes place before what you see of her in Ribble, so I guess it is a, a first look, to a degree, uh, yeah. at the character and, and her backstory and, and her motivations. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and we get a good look at what kind of things motivate her, what kind of the, the, the long-term plans that she has uh, throughout this chapter where, you know, and I'll get more into this as we, you know, as we wrap up the chapter, but a very cunning, a very cunning figure that we're introduced to here where a lot of, uh, a lot of her plans, you know, stretch far beyond what she can see in the moment. Um, and I was, I was very intrigued with her character. You know, it starts off with this conversation with her and Uvis uh, trying to to buy more shares of their mining company, we're, we're given the impression and the fact that Dunium is, is a big deal. And just from their conversation, kind of how this chapter starts, is there any, any thoughts that you have on, on what went down? Any, any takeaways from how she handled that interaction? Yeah, well, I mean, she seemed pretty confident. She obviously, you know, has the running of, of this family business from a financial point of view. And she was confident enough to to effectively deal with meeting with with Uvis and and she sort of takes it upon herself to to make the de- the big decisions here that perhaps you know are going to be important for the whole family down the line. It was kind of interesting. The way that she ends this interaction, this encounter, I should say, because it, it it goes south after Uvis is is um, made known that yeah, Price is not interested in what he's offering. You know, she goes as far as to deny him like I think four times, where he he tries to to appeal his argument to her and his offer to her, and she just flat out just 
talk to the hand. I'm walking away. Yeah. And I love this line that she drops because he's like, you know, I own 30% of the company. You know, you, you can't just send me out. And she says, and I quote, the Price family owns 70% and the guard droids answer to us. Uh, I love yeah. that. You know, we were talking about soccer beforehand. I think this is a Price 1 Uvik nil moment. I love that <laughs> that uh, <laughs> the slap in the face. Really uh, like this uh, <laughs> introduction to it, to this character right here. Yeah, and uh, I think one of the other things I kind of noticed was, I think she mentions that this character was sort of foisted upon her by the governor of Lethal, who um, who was another character that features quite heavily in in Rebels, so we hear a little bit about him, but he's spoken to, spoken of in sort of different terms, I suppose. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's uh, you know very very testy waters right off the bat. Again, I feel like I'm kind of at a disadvantage because I know nothing about these these characters moving in, but clearly. You know, and moving into to after their conversation, you know, Price is on the way home. Clearly, the governor is not one to be messed with because as soon as Price gets home, she's notified that her mom has been arrested by the governor's office. And there I am reading like, wow, those are some pretty immediate consequences yeah. after their conversation. And she hadn't told her parents about that. So that's a, a big blindside to her parents. You know, her mom's arrested all of a sudden. They don't know what's happening. But, you know, she's got a lot going on that, that she knows that, that they don't. Well, I think Uvis even sort of said, you know, you need to make sure you take this to your mother and father because this is a big decision and there's consequences. And then she sort of carries on working for the rest of the day after he leaves. And then by the time she's getting home, your mum's in the clink. You know, it's it's not <laughs> like it, she was really even given an awful lot of time to, to do that unless she, she hopped straight on the uh, on the on the calm. Yeah. Yeah, this go- uh, the governor's office. It kind of shows how important the Dunium is, where it's like, yep, well, you didn't take my offer, and now your mom's in jail. Yeah. So, and 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 maybe that can be seen as as naive on Price's part that she didn't tell her parents. But I'd like to think, and you know, as we're we're led to believe that she knows what she's doing, trying to get as as few people to know about her interactions with the governor's office as possible, especially that conversation where you know. Uvis gave like a, a veiled, maybe not so veiled threat against her family, hmm. where if her parents knew about that conversation, things might play out very differently, especially moving into Price's conversation with Senator Ranking. I believe I got that right. Yeah, Senator Ranking, where, you know, kind of this is how the chapter closes out with their just back and forth. Do you have any thoughts on what goes down in that conversation where she's trying to get her mom freed and then she moves on to her future, her parents' future? where they kind of have to move away from Lothal, given how incensed the governor's office is at, at this uh, failed deal. Yeah, well, I guess first things first, she she has the opportunity when she speaks to her father to explain what happened with Uvis in the first place, and she doesn't take it. Instead, she goes yeah. to meet the senator. And, you know, she's left sort of waiting there and and you immediately get, I suppose, a bit suspicious of, of the senator character's motivations as well, you know. And then, I guess, throughout that, that conversation, that, that sort of manifests itself. He he listens to her, he asks questions, he takes some evidence from her, and then, you know, he, he turns around and effectively, <laughs> you know, makes a worse offer than, than probably he got, she got from Movis. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting because, you know, and just given the nature of this chapter, this is a very different feel than the previous three chapters uh, with Thrawn and Vanto, where in this chapter there's a lot more legal conflicts and political undertones to um, to these conversations where, yeah, 
Price comes to ranking for help, and you know he he sends her away, pretty much saying, "Yeah, the only way out of this, you know, I can free your mom, but you pretty much have to throw away the family legacy to the empire because one way or the other, you're gonna lose it all. So you can you can walk away with a bit of a gain, you know, with you now having an opportunity on Coruscant and your parents being out out of the clear." on, I think, a baton, I think they were sent to. But yeah, this is a very complex interaction here where Ranking has something to gain with breaking up their family. And Price also has plans. You know, this is exactly what she wanted in a way because she wanted to to move to Coruscant. And this is, you know, the offer kind of sucks, but a door is open for her. Yeah, well, from a character point of view, you, you get a lot of sort of glimpses into, um, into Arinda's character. She's... Uh, when she's presenting this evidence to try and, you know, potentially get her mother cleared or at least get her out on bail or whatever, she's she's effectively thrown this character under the bus who she's fairly yeah, certain isn't sorry. guilty of, of anything. She doesn't think anyone's guilty of anything. She thinks it's a trumped-up charge. But she's willing to effectively throw this person under the bus. And then, uh, and then of course, as soon as the sort of mention of maybe her role on Coruscant comes up, then that's her, you know... Bang! That's my, that's my main driver in life. I want to get off this rock. I want to go see the yeah, the bright right, lights yeah. of the core, and and she effectively sells the family out. Yeah, you know, and she and she says she at the end of the chapter that yeah, this isn't the end of her involvement on Lothal. That she is going to plan to take the mine back um, one day, and now she's going to be in a prime position to do so, potentially being at the center of political power on on Coruscant. I thought that was. Because you know, we get this this whole notion of the malice and and cunning of Price in the internal monologue at the beginning of the chapter from from Thrawn's point of view, and that's just confirmed, yeah, with how she threw this other employee from her company under the bus, pretty much ruining her career for the sake of her personal gain, Price's personal gain, and also having the chance to free her her mother. But this is a character who. I guess she doesn't care who she's going to throw down to get what she wants. And I think that is so fascinating moving forward because we have the the subtle ruthlessness and cunning of Thrawn. And here's Price, who's throwing down careers and willing to, to tear people down to get what she wants. Almost like that, what you expect from that backstabbing Imperial officer, you know, that kind of thing. But it, at this stage, there's still a little bit of conflict there, isn't there? I mean, the... The cost is clearly high for her family, but they seem to be backed into a corner with few agreeable options. So, you know, she's not been out and out malicious at this point in in taking the deal. She feels like it's the only deal left to them now. But, you know, I guess her motivations seem at once selfish and also to her family. Yeah, I guess they they, they were, like you said, backed into a corner and... As Ranking said, the governor's office, you know, Azadi or the Empire eventually would get their hands on the mine. So this is the best deal that she could walk away with, which, you know, is kind of a kind of a worst case scenario in, in her mind. Well, Uvis's deal was certainly was better, wasn't it? Uh, you know, give away a controlling stake in the company compared to uh, to give it all to the Empire. Totally give it. Yeah. <laughs> totally giving the whole thing away. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she yeah, threw away her family's legacy. And I'm very interested to see how her plans go about in, in further chapters because, yeah, she's set up to be a, 
a pivotal character in imperial politics just based on how the chapter ends with her kind of vow, her internal oath to take ranking down where, yeah, she's going to get the mine back yeah. and she has plans to to, t- to take this guy down who's made her this deal because she knows, yeah, this is politics. He's not trying to help her. He's trying to get a good deal for himself as well. And, and she rela- realizes this. I think that no one is your friend. And she's taken a really good approach here, I think, with, uh, you know, how, yeah, she kind of took an L on the on this deal, but, you know, she has her sights, uh, her sights set for, for some really large and really great opportunities in the capital of the empire. Yeah, I loved the way they, they finished that chapter. I think, as I say somewhere here, work in Ranking's little assistance office and, and be a good girl and a model employee right up until the moment when she found a way to take him down. It's like, excellent. I love it. It's just perfect writing by Zahn, I think, where kind of leading up to that part of the chapter, we, we had that idea pretty set that, yeah, she doesn't mess around. And I was not expecting her to uh, kind of end that thought on, yeah, I'm coming for your seat, man. He doesn't know that, or maybe he does, because he probably knows the game as well. But Arenda Price, a very, very interesting and intriguing character to be introduced to and definitely going to be a, a big player moving forward. Yeah, and it's, you know, you can tell it's going to be a side plot that's going to give us more of that imperial backstabbing and, and politicking uh, we're obviously going to get it from from Eli and Thrawn's perspective but we'll also get it from from someone else too yeah I think a much more in-depth involvement in imperial politics than we'll see with Eli and Thrawn so I think this is a very setting up to be a very intriguing side plot you know we're, we're getting elements that we obviously wouldn't see with uh, in the interactions of Eli and Thrawn given the yeah the workings of imperial politics and I'm very interested to see her climb to power on Coruscant you know she's going to be in the same the same turf as Palps so very very interesting uh, side plot that's uh, bound to happen so I think that was that was it for this chapter. Is there any uh, closing thoughts that you have for uh, Price's story here? Yeah, well, I guess uh, you know from that initial monologue from Thrawn uh, and and the choice of word malice, then you've seen hints of it here and some conflict between being selfish and and also perhaps trying to get the best deal for her family. But we know malice is coming, so there's plenty yeah. to look forward to. Yeah, if if you know if you're into malice, you know. Yeah, don't, if you're a malice. Fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we got we got tulip gardens in one chapter, and now you know promises <laughs> of malice in the next. This book has got a little bit of everything. <laughs> I think the highlight has uh, to be uh, Palps tiptoeing through the tulips, though. Yes, that's that's my if, listeners. If I want any kind of takeaway from this episode, just imagine Emperor Palpatine. You know, with his green thumb and his yellow eyes, his yellow Sithy eyes, just tiptoeing through the tulips. Uh, I have this picture in my head of Homer Simpson and his secret shame of eating tulips. <laughs> I, w- I wish I, uh, I, I never watched The Simpsons. I, I wish that I, uh, I could, I could know more about about that. But I, I trust your, uh, I trust your humorous judgment. But uh, yeah, that's that. That's all that I've got for my notes here Doug thank you for coming on for a couple of episodes to get this journey going it's shaping up to be a great a great story I'm excited to see where this is going to go with a couple of very interesting plots uh, thanks for making the time to come on the show man thank you so much for for having me it's been it's been fun and uh, an excuse to uh, to get back into the book again so I'll probably I'll yeah. go on and uh, and read it along as um as the podcast is yeah I, I hope to you know also gain some more insights to the, to the book than I might have had uh, when I read it the first time you know having such uh, such wisdoms uh, coming from you and and future guests so I really appreciate you making the time man thank you so much listeners thank you so much for listening if you're on Twitter and would be interested in giving the show a follow to stay up to date on new episodes and such, feel free to subscribe at Outer Rim Read Pod. 
and you can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha. It is produced by Andrew Geha. It is edited by Andrew Geha. And we will be back in two weeks with episode three. So until then, sit back and enjoy. We're out of spotchka, but check the fridge for some of that Jawa juice everyone's been raving about down on Tatooine. And get yourself a glass. Cheers. <laughs>